I'm going to talk about uh, the fourth part of our series. Remember, we started this year talking about the beauty of the local church, the wonderful thing that God wants to do through the local church. And the first session was on loving the local church, that we really have a heart for God's church, that He loves His church and has a particular uh, heart towards us as the beloved, and He wants us to have that same heart towards each other, right? That was the first week. The second week, we looked at the message of the church. The message of the church is the gospel of the kingdom of God, that there's a king who reigns, and his name is Jesus, and he's brought a kingdom, and that trans transforms the entire way that we view the world, right? So that's the second thing we looked at. And the last week, Clive looked at the mission of the church, which is going to all the world and make disciples of all nations. Yep, and he did a wonderful job just looking at how we can all be part of mission, do mission, and uh, I really trust that you were encouraged. If you missed that, please have a look online. And uh, today I want to speak in the fourth part on the grace and the hope of the church. The grace and the hope of the church. I'm going to base much of what I'm going to speak on out of Titus chapter 2. If you want to get your Bibles ready on your phone or you can see the screen behind me. Titus chapter 2 and um, a guy called David Guzik has been really helpful in my reading and in reading to prepare for this uh, this morning. So we're going to start with the second half of the chapter, and we're going to then go back to the first half of the chapter. Part of what we've been talking about as our leadership team is how we can better learn from each other. And part of our vision as a local church is to see every generation minister together in the grace of God, young and old. Wasn't it wonderful this morning to have young people, 13, 14, 15, leading us in worship? This is a great joy for me that we can together see mentoring happen in the church, old and young. I love there's a portion in, in Chronicles that says in the temple, the teacher and the student, the old and the young, they worship the Lord together, and they led worship in the temple. And that's a beautiful, beautiful picture for us of the local church. And we need to be saying, Jesus, how do we help each other into the fullness of what you have for us, regardless of our age? All right? And so as a young, as, as a a church community we committed this year to try and mentor each other and help people to be open to being mentored and encouraged. And I'd like to speak to you this morning about perhaps how we can learn to do that and what it looks like. How, how can we mentor each other? How can we really, the business forum really is part of that, is business people mentoring each other, helping each other linking arms, saying we can do this, all right? So there's some clues for us in Titus. So we're going to start in the second half, in verse 11. I love this. Whenever the grace of God is mentioned, I get excited. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Don't you find this beautiful? Encouraging, challenging, 
all of those things rolled into one. And now here's the background. Paul has another protege. He has Timothy on the one hand. He also has another man called Titus, who's one of his uh, guys that he's works with, and Titus has been given the instruction to appoint leaders in the church in Crete, where the churches have been planted in Crete. And so he's giving Titus instruction on how to do that, and how the church, as the church is being planted and birth, how the church ought to conduct themselves towards each other. And so in the first 10 verses, if you want to go back, he has an encouragement um, uh, that Paul gives Titus. He says, specifically now talking about older women, younger women, younger men, and younger women, and how they ought to treat each other in God's household. He says this, You, however, Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So what is sound doctrine? He unpacks it for us. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect. Older men like me, that we're not frustrating everybody. That we're temperate, that we've got ourselves under control, so that we're not frustrating all the young people. You're not going to ever do this. I'm going to make sure that you never do this. That's just frustrating for everyone, isn't it? And so the instruction to Timothy, uh, to Titus by Paul is, be temperate as an older man, and, and so that you're worthy of respect. Be self-controlled yourself. Sound in faith and love and endurance. And likewise, teach the older woman to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderous, not to be gossips, <laughs> not to be gossips, not to be addicted to much wine, too many, t you know, parties during the week. You start drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, but to teach what is good. That's what he says. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, be kind, be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. So here again, this thing of self-control. In everything, set them as an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, ensure integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Isn't that amazing? So all this instruction comes to the church, and we're going to see how we are to work that instruction out. Paul here is, understands the dynamics within the church in Crete, and so he's addressing these specific needs, and he's especially interested in how they engage with one another, how they communicate the heart of the gospel to each other, and also to those outside of the church. I love it ends with, so no one can have anything bad to say about us. Isn't that beautiful? The, the church, that actually people don't have, can't have accusation because there's nothing bad to say. This is a beautiful picture. And, and of course, Jesus said, how are people going to know about me? Well, they're going to know about me because of how you love each other. Isn't that true? They will know that you are Christians, and they'll know about me by your love for each other. And so we'll be well, um, do well to take these things to heart as we seek to love each other, as we seek to mentor each other, as we seek to encourage each other this year. And how, what is the foundation of how we encourage and disciple? And Paul gives us the clue in verse 11. This is how we do this. This is how we bring instruction. This is how we encourage each other, young and old together. For the grace of God has appeared. Come on. 
It's not about rules. It's not about legalism. It's not about forcing people into behavior. The grace of God has appeared to you. Hallelujah. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Every one of us, saved by grace. Come on, this is so wonderful. Paul is now concerned that the church is not built on performance. It's not built on achievements. It's not built on ticking all the right boxes. He reminds Titus to lay the foundation of grace in people's lives. And man, if I can do one thing before I die, it would be that this church understands the grace of God, the kindness of God, the love of God that transforms us radically from the inside. Amen? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace brings salvation. It's unmerited. We don't deserve it. Uh, it's not been earned by any one of us. And God bestows His kindness on every single person to draw them into His kingdom. Grace is freely available to everyone. It doesn't mean that everyone everywhere has heard the gospel but there's one gospel of grace for all people, not a different gospel for first and third world. It's the same gospel for the first world and the third world. It's the same gospel for the UK as we preach in Bulgaria. It's the same gospel. It's not a different gospel for postmodern thinkers, modern people, and it was a different gospel to those that came in generations before us. No, it's the same gospel. It's the same message. We all need the grace of God. In other words, no, 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 none of us are outside the saving influence of what God can bring us in the person of Jesus. Whether you are an older man, or an older woman, or a younger man, or a younger woman, we all need the grace of God. We all need the same message. We all need the same Savior. And so as the sun shines down on the world and brings light everywhere, the gospel of grace in the same way is available to all people everywhere, in every generation, every nation, every age, every subculture, every people group, we all need God's grace. Amen. So what does it say then in verse 12? So Paul says, this grace has come to save you. And verse 12, he, um, he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Who is training us? Who is teaching us? The pastor? No. Who does it say? It says in verse 11, the grace of God is our teacher. Isn't that wonderful? The grace of God is your teacher and my teacher. The grace of God, when the grace of God teaches us, it never beats us out of shape. It never manipulates us. It's never forces us into something, the grace of God is kind and woos us and draws us and transforms us naturally as we open our hearts to God's grace. That's a beautiful thing. I said this yesterday to some of the leaders. If you're in your marriage and you try and change your partner, it only brings unhappiness. You can't change your partner. You can love your partner. You can pray for them. You can accept them, and you can pray like that, that God changes them, and that they see that they need to change. So Helen's done a good job, all right? She's prayed for me for many years. 
And that's what it's about. As soon as you try and change the person by just a little dig here and a little bit of behavior change here, it just ends up in manipulation and control. And that's never a good thing. That only brings the devil right into your home. And you, when you manipulate, you say, welcome. Come and live with us. Never is a good thing. Love is the only way. And love comes as the grace of God transforms us. We are changed, and we begin to see our wife, our, our spouse differently. Amen? So the grace of God changes us. And so it says the grace, is, grace of God is our teacher. And the Greek, Greek here that Paul uses for grace is our teacher is the same word that he uses when he says that parents teach children. Same word. The grace is a teacher to us in the same way that we are parents to our children, training, correcting, dis disciplining, encouraging as a parent would do. And yesterday, again, when we were speaking to the leaders, we were talking about church's family and that Paul uses the metaphor over and over of a father's heart towards the church. And I said this to the, the, the people that were there. How, when you have a child, something in your heart towards that human being is instantly transformed. You can't help but be extend patience, and you can't help but love, even when they are behaving incredibly badly. And there's something in you that's just radically transformed because this child has come into your life, and your heart as a father or mother towards them is just completely different to what it was before. It's just an amazing thing. And Paul is saying, in the same way, us in the church, we are to love each other with that fatherly and motherly affection. Doesn't mean you overlook bad behavior. It doesn't mean that you don't encourage people into holiness in their future, but it does mean the way that you do that is completely transformed. It's, it's like a father or mother would do it. It's with that same reserve and restraint and love and patience and long suffering. How many of you know, as parents, there's long suffering involved when you see your children doing something stupid and you've just got to do your best and be the example and then say, I trust you to the grace of God to transform your life. It's a different thing. Um, uh, there's a writer called D. Uh, D Edmund Hebert, and he says this, Grace operates in the lives of the saved. Grounded in God's nature, grace makes ethical demands that are consistent with His nature. In other words, grace practically teaches those things that are in accord with sound doctrine. In other words, if I've said this before in a different way, you don't have to get bogged down with a whole lot of rules. You just have to be open to the Holy Spirit, to the grace of God. And as the grace of God transforms you, you automatically start obeying the rules anyway. You don't murder. You don't pillage. You don't be unkind because the grace of God is training you, helping you to see yourself differently. And then you live differently from the inside. Amen. Spurgeon said this, are you a disciple of God's grace? Now, I have to say, the grace of God has totally transformed my life. Absolutely, as I look back. I was a Christian. I was leading a church for years before I fully began to understand the grace of God. And I was under a legalism of performance. And all of us can be under legalism of performance. They would not even know that you're under that legalism. If I just do well, I'm accepted. Yes? If my performance is sufficient, people will love me. And uh, the grace of God is so beautiful because it says you are loved despite your performance. Are you trying to be 
bad, behave badly. No, not of course. Of course not. We're all trying to do the right thing. But despite when we mess it up, we are completely accepted in the Father. We are completely accepted in the Son, and we are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit day by day, moment by moment. You are completely accepted and loved by God now, and you will never be more loved or accepted by God as you are now. What a beautiful message. And when that begins to grip your heart, man, you do live differently. There's a joy that comes into your life. There's a weight that lifts off your shoulders because you're not performing for anyone. You're just being yourself. God is allowing you to be who you are, and as you're being transformed, people are blessed. Isn't that a joyful place to live from? Instead of under labor of, uh, if I don't pray, you know, even I, I, I came from a background where it's like the prayer meeting is the most important meeting of the week. And it was said like that. In other words, if you don't come to the prayer meeting, you're not performing, and we're not happy that you're not at the prayer meeting. Do I believe in prayer? <laughs> Absolutely. Do I believe that prayer transforms? Absolutely. Should we pray? Absolutely. But to force people to come to a prayer meeting to say, if you don't come to the prayer meeting, you're not spiritual enough, man, that's a different thing. Is it not? Or are you, are you all disagreeing with me? Because... That is a different thing. That's putting on to people a performance that we need to perform in a certain way to please God. I wish that everyone would come to every prayer meeting that we ever have because it is good to pray. And something tr is transformed when, when we pray. But to force people in a kind of nuanced, kind of unsaid sort of spiritual thing, it's not the grace of God. And we can labor under those things. And I'm trying to set you free this morning to see that actually you are completely loved, completely, by the great Father, our Father in heaven, and His grace transforms everything. So, having said that, I do want to say this. Paul is trying to remind Titus that the grace of God can be twisted. The twisting of the grace of God is to think that grace doesn't do what Titus 2 says it does. A twisting of grace is to forget that grace is there to teach us. Grace is there to instruct us. Grace is there to encourage us, exhort us, point us in the right direction. So if someone is living in sin and doing something that is obviously unbiblical, and then to say, I'm under the grace of God... I, don't, I, I can ignore this. You know, grace is there to forgive me. They, that kind of person is not really understanding what Titus 2 is saying. They've stopped listening to the grace of God because Titus says quite clearly, I'm under grace, the grace of God to be taught and instructed and encouraged in the way that I live, and that's always pointing me towards Jesus, not away from Him. Amen. So it says in verse 12, grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness to those things that do us damage. It's not only that it removes our past, which it does, but it's so that those things no longer are part of our lives. Grace teaches us to not choose them and to say, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want that to be part of my life, that kind of behavior. And so, you know, we are tempted in a world, this world encourages to you to say yes to everything as much as possible. Just say yes to everything. Well, I want to put it to you. The reality of our faith is shown practically in what we say no to. You have to say no to some things in order to say yes 
to the good things that God has for your life. And that's what it carries on, verse 12, to say. Grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives now. Isn't that beautiful? Now, in this present age. All of us know that uh, as we, we grow, uh, the world's changing rapidly. There's new challenges for this generation that I didn't face when I was younger. There are challenges in our culture that might be different from one period to another. But every generation is taught by the grace of God. And every generation can learn by the grace of God how to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives now. <laughs> yes? Now. And so... We might not understand how to navigate the, uh, the ethics of AI, artificial intelligence. Well, I want to say to you, grace will teach you. The grace of God, the kindness of God will teach you how to navigate that in your life. Um, if you're trying to understand how to parent in a post-COVID world, well, grace will teach you if you allow the grace of God to transform you from the inside. Grace will teach you. There are many good courses. Yes, there are. Many motivational courses. Yes, there are. But the grace of God is the perfect teacher. I want to encourage you, open your heart to God's grace in your life, and he will teach you. And what does it say? It says, Paul uses three words, self-controlled, upright, godly. Self-control points to inward, to me, how I should behave, my control over my own emotions, my heart, my affection, what I'm giving my time to. Grace teaches you to be self-controlled. In other words, to give your time and your energy to the right things, to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. That's what the grace of God does for me. That's what it does for you. Secondly, it says the grace of God reminds us of our upright, our righteousness, and that is pointing to our position of my standing in Jesus, that I'm in Him, that I don't have to fall back into condemnation. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, yes? Romans, that great, great theme of that, that wonderful book. None of us have to fall back into condemnation. We are in Christ. We are in the Beloved. And grace reminds us, reminds us all the time that we are in Christ. So it's inward, it's upward, and then thirdly, it's outward. It teaches us the word godly is about how we respond to those around us, that we behave in a godly way that we treat people with dignity, that we're encouraging, that we're opening doors for other people to come through, for younger people to go into the ministry that they've been called into, that we're not closing the door on people, we're opening the door, we're being godly in our behavior, how we relate to each other. Upward, inward, outward. The grace of God is what we need in our lives. Amen? And I, I've had this conversation with many people the legalist will say, the person that has been brought up under rules, that if you preach grace, people are going to do their own thing and disobey God and behave badly. You need a couple of rules in place just to make sure people don't go over the edge. Have you been in church where it's like that? Yeah? But I want to say to you, when you really see what grace does, you can see that that fear is unfounded because the Scripture says that if we truly love the grace of God, all the grace of God does is teach you obedience and love and joy and being more like Jesus and being transformed by His Spirit to be more like Him. Who wouldn't want to become 
like that. Anyone here? And I put it to you this morning that forcing people by rules doesn't make them become like Jesus. <laughs> it just produces a rebel. I'm not going to do this at all. I will refuse to obey. Or it re produces a robot. Yes, I'll just do the right thing, whatever you say. I'll do the right thing. So we have these people with no life, just walking around, doing all the right things, no joy, no nothing in the church. The grace of God will only do you good if you allow the grace of God to transform your life. It will make you more like Jesus, more loving, kind, patient, full of self-control, thinking of others as God sees them. Amen. And then I want to say this. Grace is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. It's for every day, every moment. And as we continue to live with grace as our teacher, we will live lives of greater obedience, not less obedience. And then it says, it doesn't end there. Look at verse 13. All that happens as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? We are doing all of this in anticipation that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for us. This is not the end. And so we wait for this blessed hope. And the return of Jesus in glory is what we are hoping for and longing for and waiting for, anticipating the blessed hope of Jesus who's coming back for his church, his ecclesia, the called out ones, the beloved that he's transforming and drawing to himself. And that's what we get to do. We don't just wait kind of like without expectation in a blasé kind of way. We, we, all of us have this longing in our heart that Jesus is going to come back. And that's reflected in how we live and how we live in anticipation that, yes, Jesus is coming back. And because Jesus is coming back, I'm getting myself ready. We're getting ourselves ready as his bride. He's coming back for us. And so that does, too, shows us and, 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 and transforms how we view the world and His church. And so it's not just about our resurrected body, as wonderful as that is, as astounding as that is, but it's also about Him appearing and revealing Himself to us in a way that we've never seen or encountered before. That's why it says Jesus in His glory. He came, in, you know, in Christmas we celebrate He came as a babe in humility. No, he's not coming back like that. He's coming back in glory and power where the whole world is going to see him and the glory of God is going to be ev evidence for all of us. We're waiting for that moment of Jesus' glory to be revealed to us in a way that we've never seen before. And that's what it says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here, Paul is saying that Jesus is God's son. He's saying that he's God. He's saying that he was the son from the beginning. He's saying he's also our savior. Jesus, Christus. Christus is not Jesus' surname. Anthony Rist, Jesus Christ. No, no. Christus is Messiah. That's what it means. Messiah, Jesus, Messiah. And so here he's affirming in one little sentence, Jesus is God, Savior, Messiah, the same person, Jesus, in the Godhead, fully, Jesus, the one who comes to save, Messiah, the eternal one. Amen? So people often say, oh, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God, and the Bible doesn't really say that Jesus is God. Yes, it does, over and over and over again. Just read and look and see. 
And then he says in verse 14 about our Messiah, Jesus, who came. He gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Isn't that interesting? Zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself. He gave himself up for us. He didn't offer up as in the Old Covenant an animal or something other, other part of creation. He gave his very life. He chose to give himself. He gives himself to us to redeem us. You know the language here is of buying back a slave, redeeming from the slave market so that we were someone's possession. We're now someone else's possession. We were the possession of sin. We are now the possession of love and of grace and of goodness and of Jesus and the kingdom of light, no longer in the kingdom of darkness. Amen? And he's bought us from that slavery to give us a new identity, that you are called son and daughter. You are called friend. You are called the beloved. You are called the ecclesia. You are called the church. You are called the assembly of God. And he has a special, special purpose for you to make you his own. Isn't that beautiful? I love this. Language is so beautiful. A people for his own possession. That's why he's called you. That's why he saved you, to make you his own. That he, you are called the beloved, his, his church, and he's coming back for you, and he's coming back for me. Ah, oh, so wonderful, man. I am Jesus' possession. So are you. I belong to him. I am a... I am, I am a citizen of the UK, but I'm a citizen of heaven first. And wherever I go and wherever I live, I will always be a citizen of heaven. I will always have the same Father, and so will you, once you put your faith in Jesus. This is such wonderful, wonderful news. We are His ecclesia, the gathering of His people. And we know, I've said this before, in the Old Testament, there was the people of Israel, with the people of God, that image was used. But in the New Covenant, it includes Jews and Greeks and Gentiles. Anyone who believes by faith is now the ecclesia of God. And so I want to just finish with this. It says here that we are zealous for good works. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? We are zealous for good works. We are zealous to do what God wants us to do. There's a zeal for righteousness in our own lives that we want to be transformed, that we don't remain the same, the same impatient, ugly people that we've always been. There's a zealousness in us. No, we've been transformed now by the grace of God, and we're going to do all we can to put that to death and become more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And we have to fight fight that battle in our own hearts and lives every day, don't we? In the moment. Uh, Am I going to choose to be angry again? Or am I going to say, no, by the power of the Spirit, I'm not going to do that? Yes, this is a fight we all have to fight day by day, a zealousness in our own life to put to death the things of the, of the old, of the flesh, so the things of the Spirit can begin to live. Patience and kindness and self-control and speaking well. Amen? And so I want to put it to you, you have to really become zealous about that in your own life before you become zealous about that in someone else's life. Yes? Absolutely. So easy to be zealous about someone else. Oh, you really need to change. Sade, that thing, you really need to change it. It's not good for you. And what did Jesus say? There's a great big log in your own eye. And you can't even see that there's a log in your eye. And you're so determined to point out the specks in other one, in everyone else's life. Take the great big plank, the forest, out of your eye. So you can even begin to see about the speck in everyone else's lives. 
Amen? Being zealous about your own life and your own righteousness and your own sense of what God is doing in you before you start to look at anyone else. Let's start in that place. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not wanting to pe- anyone to misunderstand me this morning. Zealous means focused, intentional, passionate, not blasé, not indifferent, not casual about. You know, it's got nothing to do with your personality, all right? If you're loud like me, it's, that's fun. If you're quiet like Enchin, it's got nothing to do about being zealous. The quiet people can also be zealous. I'm married to a quiet person who's very zealous, very passionate. Not in the same way that I am. I'm more vocal, but very passionate, very committed to righteousness, very committed to truth, very committed to what is right and pure. Yes, it's got nothing to do with your personality. It's got everything to do with the Holy Spirit's work in your life. What are we to be zealous for? I don't believe I'm reading this. Paul says, your good works don't save you. Nothing saves you other than the grace of God. And now he says, we are to be zealous for good works. Yes? And in other words, God's grace is extremely practical in, my, in, in your life and in my life. Paul was a brilliant the- theologian, amazing church planter, worker of miracles, all those things. But he was also deeply concerned that in each community of faith like ours, it really did matter to him how people treated each other in a practical way. And in many ways, I want to say to you, good theology, understanding who God is, is always concerned with how we live and how we treat other people. Good theology. God wants both of our lives. And then he says this, and I'll finish with this, and then we're going to break bread together. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, Titus, let no one disregard you. So Paul is saying, hey, Titus, You've got to find courage to speak like this, not in an ungracious, unkind way, but to find courage to, to address the church. Exhort means to encourage like a good coach. Come on, guys, we can do this. Let's link arms. We're going to do this together. Yes, we all love to be encouraged, don't we? We all love to be championed. We all love to be put on the right road and exhorted in the right direction. Paul says, yep, do that. He also says rebuke. Oh, no. No, I don't like that word. That word doesn't fit with my post-Christian sensibilities, my post-modernism. Don't you ever rebuke me about anything and say that that is not a good thing. I will decide what is good. This is the spirit of our age. Paul says, are you okay to be rebuked? And so there's a right place in God's family in a loving way to be challenged by someone that something is not good for you. That's what it means to rebuke, in a loving way, not in an unkind way, in an, a loving way, to speak a word, of, a word of warning to your mates that you truly love. Hey, mates, what you're doing is not honoring God, it's not honoring Jesus, it's not honoring your husband or your wife. You're skirting with things that are going to destroy your heart and harden your heart to God's kindness and His grace. Stop doing it. Yes? There's a place for that in, in, in the church of God that we truly get to that place where we love each other so much that we're prepared to have difficult conversations and say, man, that's not good for you. And you have to have the liberty to say, and that's not good for you. It's two-way. I'm not just saying top-down. I'm saying two-way. We, le- we lead alongside each other the same way. And so there's place for these kind of direct Um, rebukes in the church, and we do that as brothers and sisters, and we do that as all of us lead together 
And if we don't, if we're not open to that, we are saying this, that we are the only person in our lives that has to judge what is right and wrong in our lives. And that's not true. The Word of God judges us first. The Holy Spirit judges us. And we need to be open to hearing a kind rebuke from a friend. What does the Bible say? That's worth more than anything. Yeah? A kind rebuke of a friend is worth its weight in gold. And so... The challenge, of course, is <laughs> when you are challenged by someone, how do you respond if you get rebuked by your wife? Anyone here been rebuked by their wife? Only me? Yes? Wives, have you ever been rebuked by your husband? Yes? Children, ever been rebuked by your parents? Yes? It's not easy to get a, to get a receiver that needs to change, isn't it? And so... Paul says, in all things, we are to speak the truth in love. And, and, of course, that is the great challenge. We speak according to the bridge that we've built, the love and trust and authority that we have in any relationship. And the goal, I said this a couple of weeks ago, the goal is always redemptive. It's always to be built up. Remember I said, when Jesus is praying for me right now in heaven, like he's praying for you, he's not saying to the Father, there goes Ant again. He's messed it up again. Did you see that, God, the Father? Did you see he just messed it again? Same, I've been speaking to him for years and years and years. He never gets it right. God, I think we should just leave him to his own devices. Jesus doesn't pray like that for you. He doesn't pray like that for me. Right now, he's saying, Jesus, help him. Father, help him. Holy Spirit, help him. Help him to see. Help him to change. Help him to have a soft heart. He doesn't lose patience with me, and he doesn't lose patience with you, and we are not to lose patience with each other. Amen? Always redemptive. Always hoping that it's going to be uh, transformed as we pray and as we wait on God. And so we, we, we speak the truth in love. The goal is always redemptive. And then the final challenge Timothy uh, Titus has said, don't let anyone dis disregard you or despise you. In other words, live in such a way that no one can despise the message that you preach. Isn't that true? And that's why Paul says not all of you should want to be leaders in the church because there's a double rebuke for a leader because then if you're preaching a message, you must be living it. And if you're not, mm, it's not so, it's a double whammy there. So no, don't all aspire to do that because it's doubly hard. That's what he's saying, okay? And so we need to bear that in mind as we, as we go forward, that we live in a way that people can't despise the message that we are preaching, the gospel that we are preaching because of the way that we are living. All right, I'll finish with this. At our leaders' time yesterday, we, we, wanted, we, we said we want to make this year 2024, a year of really standing alongside and mentoring and encouraging and loving each other cross-generationally, older and younger, younger and older, and being intentional in how we invest into each other's lives to see everyone grow and released in this church into the call of God in their lives. I wanted to preach this message on Titus to see that it all starts and ends with the grace of God. That's where we must begin. That's where we must end as we are trying to encourage each other, old and young. Yes? To walk through, uh, alongside each other by sharing our lives, by imparting our gifts, to strengthen and equip, equip each other. And that we own this as a whole church, that it becomes a culture of 
each generation looking for the best interests of the next generation or, the, or a generation that is different to them. That it's gracious, that it's kind, that it's fatherly, that it's patient, that it's intentional, that it's always building towards Jesus, that it's always playing the long game, not looking for the short-term result right now, playing the long game patiently, acknowledging there's going to be ups and downs, that it's spirit-led, that's about raising other people up, that's about releasing other people into their calling, that we all intentionally give ourselves to doing that this year. I'm not saying we're not doing it, but intentionally we do it more. And as we go forward, that we trust it becomes just the air that we breathe, that we are people that are looking out for the next people, encouraging them, equipping them, because the gospel needs to come to people in their teenage years, their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, and like me, in their 60s and older. Amen? And we've got to find a way to do that and encourage each other in that as we do that. And so we want to give, we want to go, and we want to grow. We want to give ourselves to building into the lives of others. We ourselves want to grow to be more and more like Jesus. And then we want to go. We want to raise and release other people into their calling from God so that all of us can be fruitful in our lives. Amen? All of us can be fruitful in our businesses, in our ministries, whatever they are. We can see God do amazing things this year. Amen.